You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking system, system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Thank you for joining us for our fifth and final episode of Workforce Realigned a special five-episode podcast series within Economy Matters that explores how innovative finance is reshaping the future of work. Workforce Realigned is a production of the Federal Reserve Banks of Atlanta and Philadelphia in partnership with Social Finance. My name is Ashley Putnam. I direct the Economic Growth and Mobility Project at the Philadelphia Fed, and it's been a pleasure to be your host. So today, we're really excited to wrap up this series with an incredibly important conversation, which is really about financing the future of training for workers. We've talked a lot about the economic case for this work, about the importance of doing good and doing well, and how some people in government and higher education are innovating for the future of work. Today, we get to hear from a really exciting example of what it looks like to put that innovation into action for workers of all education levels. I'm excited to welcome Lisa Lewin, who is the CEO of General Assembly, as well as Tim Spurlock, the CEO and founder of the American Diesel Training Centers. And they'll be joined today by a wonderful thought leader and partner in this work who has been an advocate for thinking about social impact, Tracy Palangian, the chief executive officer and co-founder of Social Finance. So Tracy, I'd like to start the conversation with you. You know, social finance has really dived into this work, thinking about how to fund worker training and worker education in more innovative ways. And I'm wondering what motivated that? What have you seen when you look across workers and employers and geographies about the current state of our worker training programs and what what motivated you to be working in this space? Thank you so much, Ashley. It's wonderful to be with you. We've been at this for quite some time now. In fact, uh, we started thinking about our role in helping finance worker education and training before the pandemic. And as we all sit here now in April of 2021, even in the middle of coming out of the pandemic, there's still some amazing job opportunities out there, right? Like millions of them job openings in healthcare and green energy in the skilled trades. And even sitting right now, I think we're almost at pre-pandemic levels in terms of the unfilled job openings out there. I think like Q2 last year in 2020, we saw the greatest dip. I think we lost around two and a half million of those um, job openings in the marketplace. But we're almost back to pre-pandemic levels at around 7 million job openings on the books, if you will. And many of them are actually good jobs that pay middle class wages, you know, these middle skills jobs, um, roles that require more than a high school diploma, but less than a bachelor's degree and require some training beyond a high school. And these are all um, jobs with great pathways to economic mobility. And, you know, sitting here in the U.S., that that's around, you know, millions of jobs. Right. And we have 90 million uh, working age adults with no credentials beyond a high school diploma. So this idea of these middle skills roles that remain unopened, uh, unfilled, if you will, and, and the skills gap that we've been talking a lot about as a country remain prominent even in, in the pandemic. Just a couple of numbers, um, Ashley. 52% of the American labor force uh, jobs are these middle skills jobs, if you will but only 43% of the folks in our labor force are qualified to fill them. So that speaks to the massive skills gap that separates a good portion of talented folks in the marketplace from these truly good jobs with great potential for, for advancement. 
And you talk about kind of, you know, what is contributing to the skills gap. And I think we're all uh, becoming um, more and more cognizant, what I call the kind of older uh, education and training system of the past, right? That that system isn't really set up as well as it should be. Currently, college, I think we all thought it was the pathway to the middle class, is no longer true uh, anymore. And I think we're all too familiar with the scary statistic that college has contributed to this unprecedented student debt crisis, over $1.7 trillion of student debt held by 44 uh, million Americans. But there is good news out there. Uh, because they're great, effective, short-term programs, certificate programs, licensure programs that can prepare students for great middle-class careers. But they cost quite a bit, you know, 10000 upwards of fifteen, twenty thousand, 20000 And that upfront cost is a huge barrier, especially for folks with limited credit or bad credit, people who are leaving the criminal justice systems, immigrants, refugees, or people who just face general barriers to, un- to employment. So what we're doing at Social Finance is really focused on how to open doors for these folks, especially people coming from communities of color, women, uh, and people without the financial assets to embark on these journeys. And that's where the Career Impact Bond concept was born. So Lisa, the work you lead at General Assembly is so critical and so important. And I think many people who are listening today are very aware that computer programming is a high-demand field that leads to high-paying jobs. But I'm curious, as someone who leads education and training in this field, what do you think are some of the shortcomings in getting into this career path? Sure, that's that's such a great question. Um, You know, look, four-year computer science degree programs at universities have been the the most traditional path to a career in in computer programming and you know if you're 17 18 years old and you have clear access to higher education and you can afford it and you have the foresight to know at that tender age that you want a career in programming then that's still a that's certainly a viable option right but that's a pretty narrow slice of the population that can access that path you know, and as Tracy just said, there is, you know, huge demand um, for for those kinds of skills. And so, you know, and so the oh, there's a whole population of people that that traditional path ends up excluding. Career changers, people who have a four-year degree already, people who either don't want or simply can't afford the two to four-year commitment and the expense of a traditional degree program. So that's really where accelerated programs like ours are are really critical to to helping to close those gaps. And so, you know, uh, while while our our approach, our our you know bootcamp programs, as many people still refer to them as, um, our accelerated programs are really at a fraction. We offer them at a fraction of the cost of a traditional uni- university degree. Even then, a lot of students simply aren't aren't able to pay for for those sorts of programs. Um, you know, the available financing options for um, alternative and non-traditional programs like ours are, are still unfortunately a little more limited than they are for those traditional higher education um, degree pathways. And so that's really, you know, that's really what um, we've, uh, we've been partnering to, uh, to really help to address that, that sort of gap so that students with limited ability to find access to, um, to support and loans for these kinds of programs or students who have, let's say, limited credit histories, 
or other debt obligations, and that's why they're unable to secure financing. You know, we we have been exploring um, and pursuing these alternative financing pathways to ensure that we're not sort of perpetuating a cycle that keeps folks from obtaining the training um, that uh, that they're certainly capable of doing to access uh, these these really um, you know viable and healthy career paths. Absolutely, and I think we'll get in a little bit more about this innovative model. But what is so exciting about this conversation today is we've got two representatives who are doing employment and training in two really different industries. And so, Tim, I'm curious if you could help us understand a little more about the American Diesel Training Centers and the labor market need that you're trying to address, as opposed to the conversation we just had about technology. The interesting thing is you could take what Lisa said and just change a few words, and I don't need to say anything, right? But The exact same issues that she articulates on the computer programming side are enormous on the skilled trade side. And really, when you drill down a little bit and you focus on diesel technicians, right? I mean, you know, one in 18 people in the United States is employed in some way in the transportation trucking business, right? And as we see, you know, there's Amazon trucks running up and down my driveway. Obviously, everything moves by truck. And I think the the interesting thing and a little bit of my background is, is I came up through educational publishing. Um, and for 10 years in the um, mid, uh, you know, late, two, you know, 2007 to 2016 or 17, I ran sales for a company that produced courseware for automotive and truck programs. So if you were a school offering a program in automotive technology or truck technology, we were trying to sell you our curriculum. And so I've I've, I've got to go to to hundreds of schools around the United States, both for-profit and not-for-profit, and see things from the inside. And a couple of things that were just so obvious is that the schools were, the classrooms were essentially empty, Right there weren't nearly the amount of students that should have been in this classroom. And I got really interested in the, in the, in the problem. And I started looking at it from an industry side and, and saw that there was a huge shortage of both automotive and truck, but we focus on truck technicians out there. So I'm like, this is a really interesting problem to solve. But I think the thing that really catalyzed, you know, was, was the catalyst for it um, was that we began getting calls from companies and they would say, we'd like to buy your curriculum. And we'd say, it's really set up for an educational type environment. And they, they said, we don't care. We're hiring people off the streets with no training whatsoever. So, you know, I thought this is a really interesting opportunity. And I have to tell you, we, at the, in the early days, as we were kind of building the business plan for this, we really modeled it after, you know, in concept, very similar to computer coding boot camps or computer programming boot camps, right? Because, you know, this is what the interesting thing is about education and, and, and um, is that companies, it's misaligned in many cases with, with the skills that companies want. So, you know, take a, take a truck technician for an example. No company on the planet is going to hire someone and say, go rebuild that engine or go rebuild that transmission. They're going to hire someone and say, could you conduct a preventative maintenance inspection on this truck? Can you change brakes? Can you do basic diagnostic work? And those are the kind of skills that you don't need in a, you know, in a, as even associate's degree from a community college or, an, or a, you know, a d- degree slash credential from, you know, one of the for-profit, you know, usually year-long programs out there. 
Absolutely, Tim. And this is great because I think one of the themes we've been highlighting in Workforce Realigned, the podcast, as well as the book, is the need for these kinds of innovations to create a more inclusive economy and build a better future of work for all workers. Tracy, I'd love to turn it back to you to talk about, to me, what is something really exciting in terms of a partnership that does just that, which are the career impact bonds. So I'm curious if you can tell us a little about what led to the creation of career impact bonds. And for folks who are listening and haven't had the opportunity to read the chapter in the book, tell us a bit more about what is a career impact bond and what is it doing? Absolutely. The career impact bond was born out of these industry forces, right? A traditional education and training system where the financial burden is completely borne by the individual, by the worker, whether or not the schooling or the training program delivers outcomes for them. And the career impact bond is basically building off of the income share agreement principle. But instead of just looking at the ISA, the income share agreement, as just another consumer finance option, the career impact bond is actually built as a tool for impact. So look at Lisa's program at General Assembly. Look at Tim's program at the American Diesel Training Center. These are two extraordinary programs with extraordinary outcomes for workers, both in terms of persistence rates, graduation rates, job placement rates, and sustained job growth over time. Yet if you are a low-income person, people leaving the criminal justice system, if you are facing other barriers to access, you can't come up with $10,000, $15,000 to go to ADTC to go to General Assembly. And the Career Impact Bond model is built to eliminate these barriers to access so that more people with potential and without assets can get the skills they need to build better careers and better paying jobs. So think of a Career Impact Bond as an, if you will, a student-centered income share agreement. And because of the target population that we're focused on, it covers not just tuition, but also importantly, wraparound support services, emergency aid funding to help meet rent, transportation, childcare, and other kind of life needs that the person faces. So a student would enroll in a program at no upfront cost to them through a career impact bond. And they would enroll at General Assembly or ADTC, and they would go through the program with no financial burden to them at all. And the obligation is if they graduate from the program and if they earn over a particular income threshold, they would pay a fixed amount of their wages over either a fixed period of time or if they've hit a payment cap, uh, undergirded by something what we call a student bill of rights to make sure that everyone around the table is focused on the student's success so that even after, after these income share agreement payments, the take-home pay, if you will, after the, the career impact bond payment, they're still better off. And I know that we've interviewed students at Tim's program. On average, they, I think, experience a 50% wage bump, going from around $24,000 a year to north of $36,000 a year. I remember talking to a General Assembly graduate uh, on one of our webinars, Lisa Brandon, who more than doubled his salary in Chicago, go, going from 30s, I think he was bartending, to, you know, in, in the low 70s as his starting salary. So we're really focused on the wage bumps for these people. And also importantly, have everyone around the table have skin in the game. Um, so the training providers would only be made whole if the students achieve success over a prolonged period of time. And of course, all of this is only enabled through a, what we call an impact first set of investors. These investors 
care first and foremost about the impact and they're willing to accept potentially a lower rate of return or, or not compensated for the risk that they're undertaking for that investment. So we're really, really excited. In addition to ADTC and General Assembly, we have two other career impact bonds uh, going on right now, and more than a 1,000 people have been enrolled through the investment fund that we have launched, and we're just seeing extraordinary graduation rates and job placement rates even amidst the pandemic. Something that Tim said, something that Tracy said just really inspired me. I just want to point out that Tim and I actually share a common background in, in educational publishing. And, and I think what's interesting about that is that both of us you know, made our own career switches to doing the type of work that we do today. And I think there's, I don't want to be presumptuous since Tim and I are just meeting, but I think there's a reason for that. I think for a long time, the way that that, that folks thought about um, quality education was really based on the content. Um, and the kinds of companies where Tim and I probably grew up, it was sit somebody in front of a textbook and let them sort out the rest for themselves. And you know, nowadays there's another version of that, sit people in front of a plug and play video or a plug and play lecture and let them figure it out for themselves. And I think what, um, what the folks in this room, in this virtual room know is that if you really want to transform people's lives and transform their livelihoods, it takes more. It takes a bigger investment. It takes not just great curriculum, which we, we provide with both, which both my organization and Tim's organization provide, but it takes all those other supports and services that Tracy just mentioned, the career services and coaching. You know, there is no substitute for one-on-one -on -one career coaching, interview prep, networking support, right? The kinds of things that in traditional recruitment often get overlooked, which as we know are ways that people not only screen for skills, but screen tech skills or hard skills, but also screen for soft skills. And if we're being really honest, are sometimes screening for things like class or communication. And so those are the kind that those are the kinds of services and coaching that the career impact bonds allow and support and invest in, in addition to social worker support, in addition to this, you know, the discretionary funds and emergency cash. Because sometimes it's not just about your aptitude, oftentimes life gets in the way of people being able to really pursue their dreams. So I just wanted to kind of point that out because that that that's certainly a thread um, in this conversation and in the work that all of our respective organizations do. We say that all the time at ADTC, life gets in the way. And I think that's one thing that just the current educational system, because it, let's not, it, you know, it really kind of exploded, you know, post, post-World War II, post-GI Bill, right? It's just not built. It's really not built for today's world in the vast, vast majority uh, majority of cases. And that's really one thing, like there's, if, if, if you said straight up, Tim, why did you find, why did you found American Diesel? I would say I couldn't take kids coming out of traditional programs, traditional truck programs, Forty to fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt. I just, I just, I couldn't take it. Right, knowing their starting salary. Right, but the second thing is, is you know, and this is what the current system really doesn't do particularly well. Is we're all about removing barriers, and we identified the two biggest barriers here, and I've heard both of them mentioned. Right, cost, obviously, but I would argue that more important is time because our student. The average age at ADTC is just under 27 years old. 
most of our students are in relationships. They have children. They have other things. They just they just don't have the time, uh, you know, to go to a community college for two years or go to university for four years. And they certainly don't have, in the vast majority of cases, the funds or the wherewithal. So yeah, that that's we're we're so completely synced up, which obviously is why we're both working with Tracy. I was going to say, Tracy has a magical way of bringing people together around innovation and great work. So I should not be shocked by the enthusiasm and alignment here between everyone. So Lisa, I'd love to hear a little more about your career impact bond and how that program is working with General Assembly, if you don't mind digging in a little more about that. I would be happy to. So so I may take just a couple of steps back to describe sort of how we decided to explore kind of the um, the broader category that the career impact bonds fall in, which is this idea of kind of income share agreements, right? And and we decided to kind of, you know, enter in that space, um, which uh, can have its, you know, just to be clear, can have its, you know, tensions and, and controversies. But ultimately, we made the the decision that we had to explore some sort of alternative means um, for for financing to lower those barriers that we described to people who have the aptitude, but for whatever reason, cannot access the traditional financing in order to support their um, and fund their education. So, so our decision to to commit to income share agreements in these different formats really came out of three three factors. So the first is we felt really um, comfortable and and actually and proud of our track record of being able to secure job placements for people coming through our programs, because networking and relationships are so essential to job attainment across so many fields, it's one of the reasons it can actually be difficult for some, even if they can demonstrate the skills, to get their first opportunity, especially in, a, in an area like programming. And that's regardless of how much talent and what credentials they show. And so we, as their training institution, have to be confident that we can provide that for them. We build and leverage our own employer relationships on behalf of our students. It's one of the things that we excel at. So this model works really well for us because we're confident in our ability to place people that come through our programs. Second, we have a, a, a robust you know, assessment that ensures that, that the people that are coming through are going to be able to, to do the work and complete the work and meet you know, the kind of demands and expectations of the, of the, of the program. And, you know, and so really we wanted, you know, to be able to provide some sort of financing mean to address what before income share agreements were a lot of students that unfortunately had to walk away from pursuing training that they were perfectly skilled and adept at being able to do, but because they simply couldn't find the access or the credit to them um, to be able to invest. So that's really why ultimately we decided that we had to move boldly forward into finding, you know, um, uh, into providing income share agreements um, and, and identifying alternative um, pathways. This group that we together represent, one of the country's first career impact bonds um, designed to serve, you know, a thousand individuals across these, you know, 10 U.S. cities to getting them trained in software engineering and other sort of tech areas, which we're so proud to do. And what differentiates the CIB from the ISA is a few things. Number one, it's the demographics. 
So all of our all of the career impact bond students that that we that we have through invite through our programs fit under enrollment criteria of being recipients of public benefits or have had some sort of involvement in the in the justice system or have had real challenges on um, in, in obtaining credit people who have those barriers that we've been talking about, whereas the ISA program, you know, is a little bit broader, you know, people can sort of opt opt into that with, you know, with, with, with broader criteria. But this was really intended, the career impact bond was really intended to have that, you know, outsized impact to people who are facing unusually tall barriers to these sorts of these sorts of opportunities. The other thing that differentiates it is that while we offer career coaching and support to anybody who goes through our programs, and it's one of the things that we are, are proud of, it's these added supports that these that we're able to provide, these additional wraparound um, supports. Um, and the emergency fund is another example that we're able to support um, and, and fund through these types of partnerships. And as we've said many times already, it's those, you know, it's that emergency access to funding that enables students who would otherwise be dropping out. Those can be transportation barriers. Those can be hardware and software tech needs. It can be a, an incident related to health that could, uh, related to a healthcare, an unexpected healthcare cost that can knock people out of their program something related to rent or bill payment, issues related to dependent care, things that have absolutely nothing to do with the program itself, but are the myriad ways in which we have seen talented people have to drop out of programs and abandon their future because there was not this cushion for them. And that, to me, providing that cushion is one of the things that I think is really powerful about the, the career impact bond model. Absolutely. And I think so important how we think about not just the training that we do, but how we finance it. And Tim, I'd love to hear a little more about how your program works. How is the model in terms of funding and financing for your students? Our program is a, it's a 300-hour program vast majority um, uh, really happen in five weeks. So students will come to Columbus or Cincinnati, Ohio from all over the country, and they'll stay for five weeks. Um, so they're in their little bubble. Um, it's really been a great model. All they have to do is, is, is train, is study, and um, it's just worked great. We do have a couple, um, and really it's the way that we started. We do have a couple 10-week programs that are part-time, so they're really intended for people who are working, so they'll come to class um, in the evening after work, but the, the curriculum for both is exactly the same, but it really boils down to being uh, 300 hours. I think, again, what, what Lisa said was so interesting because we this is exactly how we operate too, is the, the thing that, um, and we tried everything, right? We've tried, we tried private student loans, we tried a straight employer pay model, um, we've tried a little bit of both. We tried monthly payments, but it really, you know, things really didn't catalyze, crystallize until we began working with social finance and using the career impact bond. What we use, our primary use of the career impact bond, and it's been a complete revolutionizer, game changer, is we actually build in to the, to the bond a basic starter tool set, the cost of a basic starter tool set, 
which in in the diesel technology world or diesel mechanic world, if you look at job boards, indeed, whatever, virtually all of them will say must provide your own tools. And so imagine if you come out of a program and let's say you're 20, 30, $40,000 in student loan debt, then you have to go out and potentially buy a seven to $10,000 set of tools, right? It's debilitating out of the gate. And we saw this when we first started. And so we were able to negotiate great wholesale rates on a very solid um, set of tools um, that, you know, that would retail for about $3,500. We get it for around $1,700. And we give our students the option to opt in. We don't require it. We give our students the option to opt into including that set of tools in the price of their tuition. And 98% of our students take that option. And it's a difference of literally like $30 a month in terms of payments, right? I don't know of another school or educational program that does that, that anybody who wants to leave the program with a tool set and it's got everything they need for a very modest payment has that opportunity. And that is that, that just took things to a completely new level. It costs a company, whether you're a trucking company, a leasing company, an independent shop, whatever, it's $1,500 for every day that you don't have a working technician. Today, I'm just talking truck mechanics. In the United States, there's probably about 100,000 openings, right? So I'm not even including heavy equipment mechanics or um, power generator mechanics. I'm just talking trucks that you see hauling freight down the road every day. The labor market is so tight that many employers are extremely willing to really fund the payments of that bond on the student's behalf, right? So, and the beautiful thing is I hear all the time, there's two questions or two statements, usually accompanied with a red face and uh, lots of frustration. I can't find anybody. I can't keep anybody. And the career impact bond solves both of them because now Right. We have a portfolio of employers who are willing to fund the education of a student. So that makes it stunningly easier to recruit people. Our company partners will literally hire that individual. They then send them as an employee to American Diesel. And we do that training for five weeks. And and the nice thing is the employer on the back end with the student works on an agreement that says, hey, as long as you work for us, we will make your payments for you, right? But if you leave, if you find that better opportunity, we'll go our separate ways, but that payment is going to follow you. So we've really been able to address both the the finding issue, I can't find anybody, and the retention issue, because the fact that that employer is now making the payments for that student, right? They think twice before maybe quitting to go make a dollar or two at a shop down the road. So it really has been a game changer. And when we do recruiting campaigns promoting this model, we'll have four, five, six hundred applicants for these jobs. And at the end of the day, it's all about realigning incentives and sharing risks in a way that benefits everyone. One of the things I have loved the most about this conversation is, to me, this emphasis on the costs that we don't always measure for students. We often talk about, why won't people just go through that training program? 
If they would just take time and go through that training program, they could be earning so much more money, right? And I think what all of you are highlighting is the opportunity cost and the time cost for a lot of people, not to mention the actual financial costs of getting an education. And this innovation is really helping to de-risk that for students. So I'm curious, if you were to give advice to others who are looking at launching a similar model or an impact bond, how would you encourage them to focus on those wraparound supports and opportunity costs? I would say what's really key and what you're hearing from both Tim and me is you really have to know your audience. You have to know the, the, the lives and circumstances of the people that you want to serve. So in order to launch an effective career impact bond program, I'd say it's really, really critical to have that deep understanding of the nuances of the population, um, the things that are going to affect their experience, both inside and outside of the classroom, and impact their experience in the job search. So, you know, in many instances, you know, General Assembly has been able to really anticipate our students' needs in a way that has helped them through our program smoothly from those tech challenges to those health needs to the emergency funding. You know, what we what we do is, you know, in addition to leveraging, you know, our, our, our decades worth of experience with um, with seeing programs successfully through these programs. We still every day use, you know, surveys and interviews to get feedback, both in person as well as anonymous feedback from current students about program support services um, that we can then apply what we learn every day to future cohorts. So, so that's that to me, I think, is really the key. It's having a deep understanding and deep empathy and deep respect for the the populations um, of, of folks that you that you aspire to serve, I would say that really it, it it's all about results, right? So I mean that's one thing that that we talk all the time about at ADTC is is actually placement is more important than to us than recruiting, right? So if if we're not doing our job, if we're not going out there and forming those relationships with hiring companies. And I think we, we're up at well over 200 different companies employ our graduates and our folks aren't coming through the program successfully and success in, you know, getting placed in that job and doing well, obviously we're doing something wrong. So, I mean, my advice would be really make sure that your program is effective and delivers results for the students. Tracy, where do you see career impact bonds going next? What is the future of this innovative financial model? And what is social finance doing to promote this? We're incredibly excited about the career impact bond as a tool for impact, especially as we come out of the pandemic toward an equitable recovery. But we've also had an eye toward public policy ever since the beginning. So uh, the other way we're putting the career impact bond to work is in the public policy setting in what we call a pay it forward fund concept. Uh, in a public policy setting, uh, we have a lot more flexibility. Imagine if a state comes in and says, you know what, we're spending $100 million in our workforce budget every year. What if we were to park 10% of this workforce training dollars in a pool that continuously pays it forward. So workers who get jobs out of that pool would pay back um, their career impact bond payments back into the pot so that future students could benefit from training into the future. 
And states are not just looking at these pay-it-forward funds as a workforce development vehicle, but importantly, as an economic development vehicle. So we're now working with at least half a dozen states, and they're basically saying, you know what, skilled trades, in particular green energy, and say offshore wind is the future of the state, alongside advanced manufacturing and IT. And we're going to really use this pool of capital to focus on the workforce of the future and start to shape the economic development agenda as well as their workforce development agenda in a way that's much more sustainable and outcomes focused. And these two features at the end of the day has been extremely attractive to governors, especially in a time of austerity. The idea that you can stretch your dollars And so instead of just funding one person in one year, stretch it to fund many more people into the future, the sustainability recycling aspect of it has been very attractive. And then the outcomes orientation, as you can imagine, is just so exciting, right? People would only pay back into the pool if they find gainful employment, sustain gainful employment. So we're really excited about the future of Korean Pact Bonds. The investment fund is now, we're now in year three of it, having launched it in 2019. And we're beginning to see results, like people getting that paycheck, making payments back into the system. And it's incredibly exciting to see. I was going to close today by ending on the people. What is really exciting about the work you're doing is the opportunities here around building a more inclusive and equitable workforce. This is a conversation we've been having a lot right now around racial equity in terms of who has access to high-paying career pathways and, and training programs like yours. So Tim or Lisa, I'd love to hear about what impact you think this has on the work you're doing to build a more equitable and inclusive workforce. GA was was founded on, on the principle to give people access to good paying careers that they will love. And what we have, we feel developed a really good systematized way of doing is, is really living up to that promise of access. And that has been especially true for traditionally underrepresented groups, including women, including minorities, people of color, and including um, folks from the LGBTQ community. We have you know, created programs that really take the whole learner into account and ensure that our communities, that every GA community around the world is one that is um, deeply and profoundly inclusive. And, you know, unfortunately, in, in a lot of places um, around the world, and, and, and I think we still have to say this about the U.S., is that often these barriers to people accessing great quality education is an issue of affordability, and often affordability is, um, is linked to things like income and wealth. And income and wealth and lack thereof is often tightly tied and coupled to being a member of an underrepresented or minority group in this country. And so our ability to lower those barriers to quality education, lower the barriers to financing that kind of education, and then creating programs that are welcoming and inclusive we feel is the reason why so many of the the students that we graduate and give access to these great flourishing careers are folks from non-traditional and underrepresented backgrounds and we're we're super proud of that 
we feel the exact same way. And I was, I was just looking, you know, looking at some, at some of our data, but I can tell you right now. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just, there's so many untapped, you know, just great uh, areas of talent out there, but in, in our, in our current class in um, here in Columbus, Ohio, we are 27% black and I think 10% Hispanic, um, which is great. Um, and overall, we're nineteen percent black or African American, seven percent Hispanic or Latino. But but what's great about that is compared to the national demographics for diesel techs, seven percent of Nash of techs nationally are black and thirteen percent are Latino. So, you know, we're already outperforming national averages. It's funny, I, I had a recruiter ask me one time from a company, said, Well, what do you do to recruit, you know, underserved populations? And and my answer was we we don't really even have to do anything because it's really where we decide to recruit everyone. I don't care what your background is, what your demographic is. Everybody wants a better opportunity for them and their family. And that's what we're really able to tap into. And that's the power of what we do. But we're extremely proud of our uh, of our, um, you know, our student makeup. And we work every day to make it more diverse and to serve more people. And I'll, I'll chime in with uh, some, some statistics on, on our side. So 37% of the, of the people in our career impact bond programs are women. 51% um, identify as people of color or non-white, um, including Black, Asian, South Asian, Latinx. And 26% of the people going through these programs are parents. That index is higher than certainly our, our own programs outside of the career impact bond, and that index is significantly higher than traditional education programs. So access really matters. Um, these programs give access to people that otherwise would not be able to take advantage of these opportunities, and the career impact bond specifically has unlocked opportunity for talent that is ready, willing, and able, but has not had the bridge that the Career Impact Bond provides to being able to capitalize on that talent. I love that. And that is fundamentally what this work is about. We are talking about very wonky ideas, but fundamentally we are talking about individuals who get to go through programs and whose lives are dramatically changed as a result of their participation in them. So Lisa or Tim, I'm just wondering if you can add some color to this conversation and share some of the stories and successes you've seen so far from this work. I would love to, to say a little bit more about Brandon's story since he's one of our um, success stories that Tracy mentioned earlier. You know, Brandon grew up in the foster care system. He had, you know, poor credit history from uh, his his time trying to make money as a self-taught musician um, and subsidizing his uh, band's costs. And he was, you know, kind of tinkering a little bit with with coding in his downtime, but was, you know, just, just didn't think that he had the means or the credit history to be able to um, support a program, any accelerated program at GA or anywhere else. And, um, and as Brandon tells it, he, he got in touch with General Assembly and, uh, or GA got in touch with him and said, we have this uh, career impact bond available. And then a couple of weeks later, he was in and um, he said it was a huge celebration. Um, he said he went out with his friends who cheered because he felt like this is it. This is my pathway. This is my chance. 
And it's turned out that way for him. Um, you know, prior to enrolling in, in GA, he was, you know, trying to make ends meet bartending. And he graduated in the midst of this pandemic, got a job and currently works as a software engineer in Chicago. I'll share one, one more, which is uh, from one of our, our students that graduated in California. And I actually brought, if you'll pardon me, I'm actually going to read this one. I spent decades in prison and was able to learn about coding as a member of the Last Mile program. After my release, I didn't have a job. I didn't have credit. I was starting over, but wanted to continue what I had learned with the Last Mile. This program helped me enroll in the SCI, the engineering program, and continue my journey. I didn't have a lot of money or options. I was making about 20 grand a year. I have a son. I needed to find something that would improve our lives. And this has put me on track for a new career, a new salary, and new skills. And the emergency fund helped me during the pandemic to pay my bills when I could no longer work. I mean, you know, this is what we hear, right? This is what we hear. We give people who don't feel like they have options a real pathway to a good livelihood, caring about their family, overcoming things from their past. That to me is what this work is about. And Tim, do you have any stories that have stuck with you that you'd like to share? Yeah, that that's a problem. We could we could sit here till midnight and I could just tell stories, right? It's really why we get up in the morning. It was a, it was a young man. His name's uh, Francisco. He goes by Daniel. He's a first generation uh, immigrant into this country from Ecuador. And he was from the D.C. area, and and he he bounced around and taking some community college classes, but just it just wasn't into it. And this kid walked into just imagine this. He walked into fifteen different shops, like truck shops, right, and said, "I'd like to apprentice with you. You know, will you hire me and let me apprentice with you?" And fifteen out of those fifteen shops said no. So. Luckily for us, he ends up at American Diesel. And and I talked to the kid and spent some time with him. And obviously our instructors were like, this kid is an absolute superstar. This kid is going to be phenomenal. So he came through the program. He did extremely well. And he went back over to D.C. And he's now working for Penske, right? A, a fantastic company. We take people who are... They're just kind of bouncing around. They're all the vast majority are working hard, but we say they're in they're in high effort, low skill, low wage jobs. They're working really hard. They just can't they can't get ahead. But we give them a purpose, right? By teaching them skills that they can use for the rest of their life, and and giving them a portal into a business where some of our graduates will be CEOs, some of our graduates will start their own companies, some will be service writers, some will be master technicians. That's really what we do is we, we give them a portal into the business and we give them a purpose. And that's why we love to get up for work every day and do what we do. Thank you both for sharing those stories. I think for me, that is the fundamental reason why we are here. It is the people who are the beneficiaries of these programs that are the reason we do this work. And what you're both talking about are incredible assets that we're not leveraging as an economy if we're not doing these kinds of programs and innovating around our investments. So I just think this has been such an incredible and inspiring conversation. I am so encouraged by all of your work, 
your openness to innovation, and I hope that others listening to the podcast today will start to think about some ways that they can innovate around financing, education, and training to build a more inclusive and equitable future. Thank you for joining us for our fifth and final episode of Workforce Realigned, and what an excellent way to close out this series. Today, we heard from training programs, both in diesel engineering and in computer and technical skills, that are rethinking how they shift risk for their students to provide more inclusive and equitable outcomes. And I think that's a takeaway we can have from this series. We need to rethink the way we finance worker training and education in order to build a more inclusive future of work. We also need know that we need to prioritize financing outcomes, whether or not someone is able to get a job and maintain that job, and not just outputs, like paying for students to attend classes. This has been an opportunity for us to also hear about partnerships, new ways that sectors are coming together, the private sector and the public sector, to ensure that they're not just doing well, but they're also doing good. I hope you'll join us at workforcerealign.org to learn about some additional case studies happening across the country. You can also participate in some of our events and potential action learning groups down the line. Please visit WorkforceRealign.org for more information about this collective partnership. Thank you so much for joining us in this series. Again, my name is Ashley Putnam, and it's been a pleasure to be your host.